Brilliant. Thank you, young man, for pre uh, preaching, not preaching, but uh, speaking the scripture reading for, you know what, preaching, preaching the scripture reading for today. Thank you so much. And it was brilliant to see the young children, the young people singing. I remember singing that song. I, I grew up, I was born and raised in the Adventist church in Hawaii. Uh, how many of you have been to Hawaii, by the way? Oh, so you guys have been there before. Yeah, that's my home, the rock in the middle of the ocean. And so... But um, when I grew up in the, in the SCA church out there, and we, I, I remember that song. If I were a butterfly, that's all I remember from the song, really, <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, first and foremost, I'd like to give God praise and glory and honor for what he has done, giving me this opportunity to be out here, uh, providing myself, Pastor Alaris, and my colleague Raven, uh, traveling mercies as we made our way here from Walla Walla University. Um, and I also like to thank the church, Pastor Velaudi, uh, the first elder, the elders, the deacons, and overall the church as a whole collective um, for giving me this opportunity. It's truly an honor to be before you all and to present a message from God. Um, as it was said, my name is Matthias Bernard. I am a junior theology major at Walla Walla University. And I am also a pastoral intern for the Walla Walla University Church. I am from the islands of Hawaii, specifically from the island of Oahu. And I love going to the beach. And I hope that when I get to go home in June, I can get my tan back. The winter was terrible. I kid you not. It was terrible for me. But I love the ministry that we are doing and that I'm a part of. And many opportunities that I have had to do ministry has been awesome. And I see myself doing this for the rest of my life uh, with joy and with happiness. So will you join me as we open up with a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for your Sabbath. Thank you for this day of rest, this day of restoration, where we can come to the end of the week, not because we thank you that it's Friday or we thank you that it's Sabbath, but that this day is a day that prepares us for the next week. And in preparation for that next week, may we be spiritually filled and may our cups overflow with the love that you give to us freely. In your name, amen. God is still working. In Hawaii, in, in, uh, in, the, in the islands of Hawaii, and the big island, in, this, in the town of Hilo, they have this this um, event, and it's one of the most biggest events in Hawaii, and it usually happens around this time in the month of April, and it is known, can you hear me by the way? Yeah. And it is known as the festival, the festival is known as Merry Monarch. Can you repeat it back to me? Merry Monarch. Merry Monarch. And Merry Monarch is basically, it is what we call the Olympics of hula. Can you repeat to me hula? And hula is a form of dance in, ha in the Hawaiian culture. And there are, different, there are two different forms of dance in the Hawaiian culture, in, in, this, in this culture. And it is, there is the ancient form of hula that involves um, chants and drums and beats. And then there's the modern-day version of hula, which is more modern, with the ukulele. And I could see we had an ukulele this morning. 
and, and, we, and, and it has the bass and um, music and singing, and there's a lot of poetry behind it. So there's an ancient form of hula, there's a modern-day form of hula, and then there is Miss Aloha Hula. So in these competitions, groups from around the islands, hula groups, hula halaus, they are called halaus, they are these groups where they practice and they train and they practice so extensively that every step they take must be in unison. It is practice to perfection. And all of these groups would come from the islands, from Kauai, Oahu, Molokai, Maui, and they would all come down to the big island and they would all compete to see who would win the Merry Monarch Festival. But for Miss Aloha Hula, each group would present their most star pupil. Each teacher would work one-on-one -on -one with this star pupil and choreograph a, an ancient hula and a modern-day hula, all to be performed on the same night. What happens here is that we see that the training does not start in March. It doesn't start in February. It starts a year in advance before they even get to the stage. There is so much training and practicing that happens behind the scenes that when the star pupil goes up to the stage and is seen by the judges and the people, she is unfazed. She is prepared. She is ready to perform her performance for the evening. As I was doing my studying, I came across the book of 1 Kings. And in the book of 1 Kings, we find that we are focusing our attention on Solomon, King Solomon, who is the son of, you could guess who, of David. And being the son of David, I mean, come on now, if you're the son of David, you have a big responsibility. You are coming from an empire that has, create, has built itself to be well-known. And if you are seeing that there's nowhere else to go except up, that is a great responsibility. And so, we find in the, in the book of 1 Kings that Solomon ascends to the throne. And he ascends to the throne at a, quite a young age, actually. And in his ascension to the throne... He is determined to rebuild the kingdom of Jerusalem. And he is determined to rebuild and refurnish the temple of God. And so we find here that as Solomon ascends to the throne in his 20s, he is at a point where he is like, I, bro, I don't, he's like, at this point, he's, he's talking to God and he's like, bruv, I don't know what to do. I am only 20 years old. Solomon is literally my age, and I'm 21. He is literally my age when he ascends to the throne. There is so much responsibility. It's as if you guys are giving me the responsibility of being the lead pastor and kicking Pastor Valadi out. It's that much of a responsibility. It's intense. It's extreme. It's a lot for a 20-year-old to handle.
And so, what we find is Solomon asks for what? He asks for wisdom. And does he get it? Yes, of course. Of course he gets wisdom. In chapters 2 and 3, we find that Solomon is practicing that gift that he has given when he's presented the two women who have this dispute over the child. And we also see his wisdom in, in which he collects a cabinet of advisors that lead him and counsel him on his decisions in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple. God gifted Solomon with wisdom. That phrase, and God gave Solomon wisdom, appears only once in chapters 4 through 9 of the book of 1 Kings in the ESV. In the ESV, we only find that phrase, and God gave Solomon wisdom, once in chapters 4 through 9. Now, God is mentioned when they give praise to him, and God is mentioned when they reflect on his love, and God is mentioned when he is referred to in history, but God is only present once between chapters 4 and chapters 9 in the ESV. Our attention is no longer on what God is doing, but on what the gift in which God has given Solomon is performing. Did you catch that? Our attention is no longer on what God, where God is in the story. Our attention is now on Solomon and what he is doing with the gift in which he has been given. Solomon, as you see in chapters 4 through 9, is investing his time and energy in rebuilding the temple. Now, if you do not know this, Solomon's temple was built around the 400 BCs to the 300 BCEs. And around this time, Solomon is determined to build and refurnish the temple. It is going to be the biggest temple in all of the Eastern world. And it was. It actually was. I, I, I noticed that the children downstairs have this little makeshift um, tabernacle downstairs in the, in the children's wing. And I thought it was beautiful because that is actually the accurate um, depiction of the temple that was used when the Israelites were traveling through the desert for 40 years. But when Solomon comes into power. He's like, no, it's going to be big. It's going to be great. And it's going to have everything that we wanted. The basins were large. They were huge. It wasn't just a small basin for water. It was a huge basin. I would even say the basin was as big as this sanctuary is. You could probably fit it in here. And that's just the water basin in the outer courtyard. And I'm pretty sure Four residential areas outside of this church would be the same size, or four residential homes, would be the same size as the altar of burnt offerings, if not small in comparison. Solomon was invested in doing this. He was using the gift in which God has given him to manifest what God's will was for him and his kingdom. There is a natural response to what God has done for Solomon. 
But here's the thing. Solomon, it is great that you are doing all of these things. But where am I, God says, where am I when you think of me? Why do you bother to only mention me once? Listen to what God is saying here. Why do you bother to only mention me once? Yes, yes, the temple is great and all, but I'm not I, God. I am not invested in that. You, bought, you brought all the right furniture, and you did everything to the T. And yes, traditionally, you are perfect. But I'm not worried about the quantity of the things that are in my temple. Yes, yes, that's great. You went out and worked something with someone to refurbish and build this temple for me. But I'm not concerned about that relationship right now. Awesome. I'm glad you did a whole sermon construction and proclaimed truth to me, Solomon. I'm glad. See, here's the thing. Solomon was doing all of these things. He was making deals with um, Herion, the king of Tyre. And what he was doing was he was trying to grab funds, right, to rebuild the temple. And not only that, he took, he was so specific in his, in his measurements and in his placements and in his what type of furniture would be used in the temple that all of his time was invested in that. But we do not see him nurturing and taking care of the relationship from the source in which he got his wisdom. Did you catch that? He is so invested in trying to work out the gift that he forgets the source in which the gift came from. This is what God is saying to Solomon. I am working the covenant that I have established with your forefather Abraham. I am working behind the scenes, putting down your enemies around you. I am investing my time and energy in bringing you, Solomon, closer to me. I am devoted to you, Solomon. You don't have to do all of these things. I want to make sure you know that I am working behind the scenes for your benefit. You don't even know how amazing you are to my overall plan. I am not invested in what you're making or what you're doing with the gift I have given you. Just as easily as you made these things in the temple, I can easily destroy them. Just as easy as it was for me to give you wisdom, I can easily take it. I am not a tight-fisted God who reacts childishly when things do not go my way. But if I have to remove something to remind you of what I am doing behind the scenes, then I will do it, says the Lord. This is the conversation. This is the ideology. This is the theology in which we see the interaction between Solomon and God. This is the relationship that God is asking for us. And now many of you are wondering, what is this relationship that this guy, this guy in the blue, really bright blue and top of the stage is talking about? Let me tell you. It starts in Genesis chapter 15. Any of you guys know that story with, with Abraham? In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham just comes from a battle. And he's in conversation with God. And, and he's about to make this covenant with God. And in those times, in Abraham's times, in the ancient days, there, they didn't have paper. They, they couldn't really 
you know, write up a contract and be like, yo, sign it right here, right here, and you keep to your end and I'll keep to my end. No, 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 no. It was much more stricter than that. Um, what we find here is that Abraham was instructed to grab um, a heifer of three years, a ram of three years, a goat of three years, and turtle dove and a pigeon. And in grabbing these animals, he had to split, now it's going to get a little graphic here, but he had to split down the middle the animals and put each on one side. And in doing so, there would be one half of the animal here, the other half of the animal there, and there'd be blood in the middle. And what happens is somebody who is of a higher status would stand to the side and the person of the lower status would go down the middle, this, 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 down the path of blood, and they would say to the person of the higher status, to you, my Lord, I will devote my life. To you, my Lord, I am in servitude. To you, my Lord, I will not betray you. And if I were to go back on my covenant and this promise to you, may my life end like these animals. And so the narrative should have gone to where Abraham is walking down the middle and saying to God, God, I am yours. I am your servant. And if I mess up, may my life end like these animals. But that's not how the story goes in Genesis chapter 15. It is the God of the universe that comes down who is supposedly omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, and he comes down in that moment, and he walks down the bloody um, aisle right there, that bloody, that bloody path, and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I am invested in you and humanity. Abraham, I have a plan for salvation. Abraham, through my line, or through your line, Abraham, I will produce, you will produce a Savior, and I will have a Savior come through you. And if I am unable to meet that covenant, Abraham, may my life end like these animals. Astonishing that the God of a universe, an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, would come down, degrade himself, and say to a human, May my life end if I were not able to keep this promise like these animals. See, the story of Solomon is not all about Solomon. It is about the source in which Solomon gains his wisdom. And that source is God. And God is constantly moving and working behind the scenes because that is the focus of his attention. It is not what he gives us or the things around us. It is not the, the, the beautiful things that we have now. It's not those things. It's the covenantal relationship that he had established from the very beginning, promising salvation to all of humanity. In recent days, <clears throat> His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, passed away April 9th of 2021. Consort to the crown, 
of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Queen Elizabeth II was very young when she married Prince Philip. And she was also very young when she ascended the throne in England. And in her ascension, she has been reigning for the past 70 plus years and continues her royal duties, though they may be slim in comparison to her earlier days. Her Majesty continues her royal duties. In an interview, I believe, in the 90s, in the late 80s and early 90s, Queen Elizabeth and the Prince Philip were celebrating their anniversary. And in front of everyone, Her Majesty makes a comment and says to the crowd, I am your sovereign. That is true. They are her subjects. But she said to them, I would not be who I am today if it were not for my husband. His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh, the Prince Philip, worked behind the scenes all the time. He was, amend he was commended for his revolutionary ideas and, and um, suggestions that modernized the monarchy of England. And it was because of him working behind the scenes endlessly for his wife that the monarchy in England still stands to today. His Royal Highness the Prince Philip worked behind the scenes and made the Queen, Her Majesty the Queen, who she is today. In the summer of 2018, I was a little hesitant on coming out here to Washington. I did not, I actually never visited Walla Walla University before coming out to Walla Walla University. I was actually supposed to attend Andrews University. So, you know, you could imagine the cold there versus the cold here. Yeah, it's a good thing I came here. And so, with that being said, uh, my parents and I, we dropped our money here, or we dropped our money at Walla Walla University, and we decided that I would just go straight from Hawaii and come here to Washington, or come here to Walla Walla, Washington. And let me tell you, I was scared. I had never left the rock in the middle of the ocean. I had never left it. I probably came out here to Washington once, but that was probably for a family event, and that was probably for a week, and that was most likely on the west side, uh, near Auburn or Puyallup area. And I was definitely terrified, and I was scared. And I didn't know what to really do and how to really respond, because it was my first time being out here alone. And mind you now, someone like myself who's used to seeing green all day, every day, and then I came out here and saw just brown and death in the, with, the, with the grains and everything, I was like, ooh, this is going to be tough. But despite my insistency on being doubtful and being hesitant, God was still working. And that's the thing. No matter where we may be in life, 
no matter what age we may, be, we may attain or what age we may be at, no matter where we may be in life, no matter what we may be doing in life, no matter what, whatever alphabet you have at the end of your name, no matter what successes or failures that you have in life, God is constantly working. See, we've been so programmed to focus on the individual and on ourselves and on specific things that we neglect the overall message or the overall idea in which everything is happening. We need to understand and see clearer that no matter what we may be doing in life, no matter where we may be going in life, no matter what may be happening in life, God is still working consistently. He is a way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. And him being that is this idea, is, is a revolutionary idea because here's the thing. Humanity has always made it its mission to need to appease something. For centuries, humans have made it its mission to appease something they, in order to get something in return. But let me tell you people, the God that is present in this book is a God that is not only working behind the scenes, but he is also saying to you, you don't have to bring me anything. I'm working something out right now. I am working for your salvation. I have made it so that I risked it all by sending my son to die on a cross. And in him dying on that cross, yeah, not all of you are going to accept him. But I hope and I pray that by his blood being spilled, may that be an opportunity for your salvation to be attained. So that as you respond to the natural form of love in which I give you, may your life be filled and your cup overflow. And like it says in the end, of chapter, of, of chapter 9, verse 3, my eyes and my heart will be on you for all time. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this Sabbath day. Bless us and be with us in your name. Amen.